This is a Federal News Network podcast. New research by sociologists at Rice University finds that when a natural disaster hits an area, self-employment tends to go up. But those gains also come with inequities. Racial minorities consistently see fewer gains in entrepreneurship than white residents. And for reasons that still aren't completely clear, the gap gets wider depending on how much disaster aid FEMA contributes to local relief programs. Asia Bento is a doctoral fellow in Rice's sociology department, and Jim Elliott is a professor of sociology at Rice's Kinder Institute for Urban Research. They are with us now to talk about some of their findings. And, and Jim and Asia, thanks for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. Um, I think the, the obvious place to start here is if you can just, before we get into the racial components, describe generally what we know about the reasons why self-employment tends to increase in the aftermath of disasters and how large those effects are as far as we know? I think that's a really good question, but one that kind of requires us to look at the motivations behind our study. And so we know that there are pre-existing inequalities um, in self-employment, like racial disparities and inequalities in self-employment, and that they're sustained by the uneven distribution of vulnerabilities and opportunities across racial groups for those who are able to enter self-employment and then maintain self-employment. So if we think about access to capital, either through a bank and lending, um, one's own social networks, or even the savings we might have in our own bank accounts are kind of all racially distributed. Um, And so we were curious to look at um, whether or not a natural disaster and then the federal aid that flows into an area after a disaster kind of play into exaggerating these opportunities and vulnerabilities. And so we know, right, that one's vulnerability to a disaster can be unequally distributed by race. Um, And then recent work by my co-author and then the Female National Advisory Council also show that recovery opportunities are uneven. um, And they may make recovery worse, exaggerate inequalities. And so we look at self-employment, particularly, like I said before, because there are pre-existing inequalities in self-employment. And then because disasters kind of disrupt labor markets um, when they do occur. So people have to rethink, will I work for myself? Will I go back to my job? Maybe where I was working before has closed down. And so this is something that no one has ever looked at before. Um, And so we take a look at a diverse set of counties nationwide um, and look at the impact of self-employment rates broadly. So our study is really just kind of the beginning, um, looking at those broad dynamics. And so the next step would kind of be looking into what you asked, which is about these underlying dynamics that kind of exaggerate or push or widen these racial disparities that exist in self-employment after a disaster. Yeah, uh, Jared, it's a great question. And, and the motivations that Asia spoke to really get at the idea that we weren't interested just in increases in self-employment generally. But your question is a good one, because in general, uh, there hasn't been a lot of research on what happens to self-employment and entrepreneurship after disasters. There have been some case studies, but not national uh, analyses of the sort we're doing. But in those case studies, there are oftentimes a couple different sort of suggestions or observations that might answer your question. One is sort of, okay, well, the disaster happens. And so it creates a combination of things. There might be 
pulls into self-employment, for instance, you know, there might be opportunities from creative destruction that sort of happens and opens up new opportunities uh, in conjunction with what we might call the pushes of disaster and recovery, right? People have lost their job or they can't come back. So they have to innovate in a certain way and may explore that. So that's, that's on the disaster side. But when we looked at that, what our results show generally is that it's true, you know, as you come into a county and you look statistically at the evidence, the more local property damage there is from a fire or a tornado or a flood, the more local self-employment rates go up. But when we factor in FEMA public assistance funds, what we find out is that that's the real driver. It's no longer the damages and the creative opportunities and the pushes and pulls. Those are still operating, but the real driver at the local level is how much federal money comes in to restore not individuals and households, but the community and the infrastructure and how that flows in. And there's something happening there that increases self-employment rates in general. Yeah, and to pick up on that point a little bit, so as I understand it, you get the data sets that you guys looked at were 2000 to 2010, so a pretty good chunk of time there, which makes me wonder, do we know how persistent both these increases in self-employment and the racial disparities are over time? Because I, I would imagine that a community's needs are, are different in the immediate crisis stage after a disaster than they are five years on. Yeah, Jared, you're absolutely right again, and it's a great question. Um, But right now, from our study, it's unclear how long these changes actually last. And so, like you said, we look at a broad stretch of time, and so we're looking at overtime trends. Um, And we looked at the decades from 2000 to 2010 because that was the available data that we used, the decennial census, um, which offers specific counts for self-employment by race. Um, And so... These impacts are long-term impacts and that once they do start to occur, they don't reverse. Um, But we can't specifically tell you from our findings because we're looking at broad trends, how these things are changing from month to month, let's say, or from year to year. The, The way these FEMA funds, as I understand it, tend to be distributed is through state and local government. So it's probably pretty hard to figure out exactly where the diversions are happening that cause racial disparities in the first place. But Do we know enough at this point where at least at the FEMA, at the federal level, there are any kind of interventions that you could put in place to help reduce those racial disparities? A great question. We're all interested in what's driving these factors, including FEMA's National Advisory Council, because they've put these types of disparities from uh, disaster recovery as sort of the, the forefront of their efforts going forward. And so what we can say at this point, having done this research and sort of being the first to sort of reveal these inequalities is that there's something going on there. For some reason, the FEMA funds that come from public assistance that go into rebuilding bridges and infrastructures and schools, that money is going through a system that without intention is generating the self-employment increase that goes disproportionately almost entirely uh, to local white folks who are living in the same metro areas uh, as uh, black and Latino folks, because we we remember we looked just at metropolitan areas where we could compare apples and apples uh, in terms of where they lived and what they experienced. And so the solutions are the next step. And for that, you're right. Uh, FEMA, uh, in many respects, is a grant management agency. Uh, they, they hand funds down for these projects. And what happens to that money and what projects are funded are going to sort of filter through 
state and local agencies. And at this point, we just don't have the data to look at those disparities and how they play out. And they probably play out differently uh, in different situations. But what we can say is that by putting money, more money, taxpayer money through this system, it's generating these inequities. And so we need to think about, you know, maybe things that, that we haven't been able to study yet, but should, such as um, are there set-asides or other incentives to make sure that uh, money goes or is available for loans for minority businesses or new startups? Um, and really other programs that begin to put the outcomes first, what happens and hold local and state authorities perhaps a little bit more accountable for these sorts of disparities. And I think that's the direction that the uh, National Advisory Council to FEMA is suggesting that, that we need more data, we need more measures, and we need to focus on the outcomes, not just on good intentions. Since since you just mentioned it briefly, I just want to hammer home a point that, that you made a second ago, Jim, which is, I, I think as far as we know, there's really no reason to think there's specific malice involved in these disparities. If, if anything, it's probably just a result of the fact that the money is throwing through structures that have a pretty well understood history of, of structural racism in them um, that's been studied pretty well by other folks, right? That's right. I'll just say that there's, there is a, a good amount of research is now beginning to accumulate in other fronts. I've been involved in other research uh, that's followed people through time and shown racial disparities in wealth accumulation and going into debt over time through exposure to uh, natural disasters. So pointing out that there are privileges that come from these unintended sort of policies that flow through these systems, as well as vulnerabilities. And sometimes we miss that. And to the extent that people might be um, benefiting unknowingly from these types of transfers or privilege, there might be less incentive to fix it, right? So the first thing we have to acknowledge is, you know, to fix something you need to see it. And so a big part of our research was moving the lens and showing that this is a problem or an issue that needs to be considered. And it probably does link itself through these systemic issues of inequity that, you know, basically happen through not malice, as you mentioned, uh, but business as usual. If we just keep pretending that good intentions get the job done, uh, then we're going to continue to see these inequities. But Asia, please I, I'm, I think that's exactly right. And I think to shine a light right on structures and these systemic inequalities that occur when business as usual is happening is I think what we're hoping to do with our research, right? To give us sight into, well, what are the next steps to look at? How is business as usual operating to create these inequalities? There was a recent study that I read, right? To maybe highlight this, that even when the coronavirus pandemic hit, in areas where that were predominantly served by right, minority institutions and credit unions, um, these were borrowers who were less likely to get a pay check protection loan, particularly because these banks just didn't have pre-existing relationships with the SBA. And so that's one way to think about how business as usual is kind of creating these structural inequalities that emerge after a disaster. You guys looked at a bunch of different geographical areas, and I'm wondering if there are differences that you saw, because there are different systems of government slightly in, in different places and probably different histories of, of structural racism um, in each of those places. So are, are there differences? Um, so again, we look at broad trends across this diverse set of counties, and so we don't drill deep into maybe regional differences or differences across counties based on laws. 
Um, but we do know, right, that how FEMA aid even gets dispersed to a county or a state can vary widely across the country. And so that would be another area that would need further research and attention. No, I think that's absolutely right. We, we spent a lot of time statistically, Jared, uh, trying to minimize the noise of, of variation across places to get a, a strong and reliable statistical average. And we think we've done that. And so another one of the next steps is figuring out who's particularly doing it well, that is minimizing these disparities and, and who's not, and maybe learn some additional lessons, including you know where you're sitting in New Orleans or other folks are sitting right now facing Henri or Hurricane Henri and thinking about, you know, what is it that's worked there in the past versus the present and where they want to go forward. So I'm sure there's variation over time in places as well as between places. That's Jim Elliott, a professor of sociology at Rice University's Kinder Institute for Urban Research, along with Asia Bento, a doctoral fellow in Rice's sociology department. We'll post a link to the study we've been discussing at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual, actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, 
We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers as others call them every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance in some cases and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship, step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. 
and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.